Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back to our study of the Abrogatinos, and we're picking up this evening on page 204. And if you remember, we've been looking at the Father's writings on avoiding the company of those who can do us spiritual harm. And so they aren't talking about a lack, certainly, of hospitality or charity towards others, but being in the presence of others whose behaviors, whose actions, whose words, uh, can draw us off of the path uh, that leads to Christ and, and to holiness. And so uh, we're just in the final pages of this, a couple of beautiful stories. And then we'll be moving on in the next hypothesis, too, uh, which focuses upon the ease of falling into sin or taking the path of sin, as opposed to the, the demanding life of one who pursues the life of virtue. And so these are the topics that we'll be looking at tonight. And again, we're on page 204, letter G, at the bottom of the page. A brother said to Abba Kronios, tell me, Father, how shall I be saved? The elder answered, when Elisha went to the Shemanite woman, he found that she was distracted by no one. And for this reason, at the appearance of Elisha, she conceived and bore a child. The brother said, what does this mean? The elder replied, if the soul is vigilant and withdraws itself from distraction and abandons, abandons its volitions, then the spirit of God comes to it. Thereafter, it is able to bear lofty spiritual thoughts, whereas before it was barren. So Abacronios makes use of this image from the Old Testament, from uh, the life of uh, Elisha, uh, going to the woman who had been barren. Uh, to focus in upon the spiritual life and the value of stillness, of silence, of being able to direct one's thoughts to God. And so when our lives are not filled with distraction, he's telling us here, and when our, our minds are not filled with thoughts that pull us away from God, it's then that we can see spiritual fruit uh, begin to produce itself within us, uh, that the more that we are focused upon God, and the more that we are seeking out his grace, the clearer our vision becomes, the, the greater our purity of heart. And so our capacity then to discern the will of God. And when this grows within us, then we are capable of bearing fruit that is pleasing to God or of living, living a God-pleasing life. And so again, the focus is especially upon one's thoughts and not filling one's life with so many distractions that the, the mind is overwhelmed. Uh, and if you remember, we've talked often about being in a constant state of receptivity, simply because of our nature of human beings. Through all of our senses, we are receiving input from all the things that we encounter throughout the course of the day. And so the, the more that we foster a kind of solitude, simplicity, stillness, the more the mind can become still, mind and heart can become still, and we can listen more deeply to God. And so it's not necessarily looking upon all these things in the world as being evil. Uh, it's simply acknowledging uh, some of the weaknesses that we have as, as human beings and how easily we can be distracted. Okay. Letter number two. Once the ruler of the country wanted to see Abba Poyman, but the elder declined. 
In order to compel Poyman to meet him, the ruler arrested his sister's son as a criminal and threw him into jail saying, if the elder comes and intercedes for him, I shall release him. So his sister went weeping to his door. The elder gave her absolutely no response. She railed at him, you have a heart of bronze, have pity on me for he is my only son. The elder then sent someone to tell her, Poyman never had any children. So the woman departed without achieving anything. When the ruler heard this, he sent an emissary to the elder with this message, order me even with a single word and I shall release him. The elder responded as follows, examine his case in accordance with the laws. If he deserves death, let him die. If not, do as you wish. So a rather hard story to listen to, but uh, when we read it closely, the leaders, uh, the ruler of the country, uh, his words and his actions sound like temptations from the evil one, putting before uh, the elder uh, circumstances that would compel him to break away from his fundamental vocation. And for the monk, it would to be, uh, I'm sorry, it would to have been to die to the world and not to have any dealings with the world whatsoever, even if they seem justified. And certainly in this case, it has to do with his sister and uh, her son, and so a relative and intervening on, on his behalf. And yet the elder sees what's taking place there and how uh, natural relations, natural love, uh, as well as worldly power is seeking to pull him away uh, from the life that he has embraced and the calling that he's embraced. And uh, for us, you know, I know this seems removed from the circumstances that we would face on a day-to-day -day level. But I, I think when we look a little bit more closely, we can see that there are constantly things that come to us in subtle ways that would pull us away from our fundamental vocation as Christian men and women, away from our baptismal vows, from the call to holiness, uh, that would draw us into things that would give rise to the passions within us, uh, simply because everyone around us is, is engaged in such activity, perhaps inviting us in, into things that would stir up our passions and then perhaps lead us into sin itself. And so we can't let sort of the extreme nature of this pull us away from the fundamental truth of it, that we are constantly the focus of the relentless activity of, of the evil one and of the temptations that come to us from day to day, moment to moment. Anthony. At first, it seems harsh, Anthony writes, but it, it's perceptive. Poyman called the roller's bluff and let him look at his own conscience as a mirror for his unjust deed. Right, I mean, I think he puts it before uh, the ruler to embrace the responsibility for what he's done and uh, falsely imprisoning him in order, in a sense, to manipulate Poyman to intervene. And so uh, by holding fast to his vocation, he's doing exactly what Anthony is saying here that he's, you know, becomes a kind of mirror uh, for the ruler in regards to his own actions. And so it becomes the voice of conscience for him. 
do what you need to do then, just him, judge him in accord with justice. Why do you need me to say or do anything? We'll often be pulled into circumstances like this in our day-to-day life, not again as extreme, but I, I think to interject our, our judgment, our opinions, our thoughts about certain, uh, certain things that are going on in the culture or whatever it might be or within the church uh, that draws us into something uh, that can give rise to anger, conflict, breakdown of charity. And so we need uh, perhaps even more vigilance than those who lived in the desert in that regard. Daniel Allen writes, that story is a lot like how Herod wanted to meet Jesus, but he never sought him out and was amused and intrigued by him, but with no intention to learn from him. Jesus never went to Herod until his passion. This ruler is amused by Poynton and tries to entice entice Poynton to come to him to fulfill his amusements. And Poyman refused to cater to his petty curiosity and amusements. Very good. Uh, that's true. You know, I think when we uh, look, look at Herod's life, you know, there, he was intrigued by Jesus, but not willing, as you said, to go to him. And uh, was more interested, I think, in, in amusement or being driven by a kind of curiosity or simply fear. That, uh, that Jesus was John, in a sense, re- raised or reincarnated, coming back to haunt him for his, his past deeds. Okay. Letter H from St. Ephraim the Syrian. A monk who is entangled in the affairs of life and directs his thought towards worldly matters is like a man who hacks himself to pieces. Rather blunt. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's kind of refreshing in some ways because uh, the, the desert monks aren't afraid to sort of put it out there and allow their words to be a little bit jarring. That uh, when we direct our thoughts to worldly matters, it is like doing ourselves self-harm. And we often wouldn't look at it in this way, because I think we are often driven by uh, entertainment, curiosity, amusement. Uh, We're looking to have something engage us in terms of our imagination. And without realizing that allowing our minds and our hearts to turn away from God or what God has set us to do is like engaging in self-harm. We are wounding ourselves by not guarding our hearts and our thoughts. And I think when we begin to look at the spiritual life in this fashion, it compels us then to look at our thoughts with a greater honesty or, and look at what's going on in our hearts throughout the course of the day. Am I maintaining this kind of vigilance or am I simply allowing myself, whether it's out of negligence or laziness to be pulled into things that are going to be agitating to the heart? And so in that sense, am I doing self-harm? Am I cutting myself to pieces? And I think, you know, since we've talked so much about the battle being psychological and being rooted in the thoughts, that uh, this kind of self-harm is 
more damaging, I think, than we are willing to, to recognize uh, because uh, we're surrounded by things that are filling the mind and with, with so many different things and uh, constant you know, flow of news to us from around the world, anything uh, that might pique our curiosity. And, uh, and so it's hard for us to see it as something wounding. Number two, a monk who seeks after the inheritance of his parents according to the flesh, after he has renounced the world and become a monk, will fall into temptations. He who seeks out the Lord will be saved. Do not say, if I grow old, how shall I sustain myself? Here, we are not permitted to worry about tomorrow, and yet you are already worrying about your old age. Let us seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added unto us. For he who has promised this does not lie. If we do not seek these things first, it will be evident that we are not struggling for them. Cast your care upon the Lord, and he will nourish you. If the Lord grants you success in some work of your hands, take heed therein, for you are going to give account of it to him who helped you. So, you know, certainly, I think, uh, for those within the world, I think for a monk, it obviously would be more of a problem, but uh, focusing upon the inheritance of one's parents. And we see certainly gospel examples of this as well in the story of the prodigal son, how it can stir up a kind uh, of greed within us. And in our day, I think it also can stir up a kind of anxiety that we are often very fearful about the future, you know, certainly with everything going on in the world, but we are very conscious of our financial stability. And so, uh, I wouldn't say that we should give no concern to it, but I think it can become a preoccupation for us where we are, are allowing our, again, our hearts to be filled with a kind of anxiety that then leads to dissipation in the spiritual life. If we're constantly focused upon how to protect ourselves, then we aren't focusing upon how the Lord provides for us or the things that are most valuable in the eyes of the Lord and what we should be pursuing the most. What has the greatest value for us? And how, you know, what is our true inheritance? And how is it that we seek after that? You know, if we are sons and daughters of God, if we are to be heirs of the kingdom and uh, receive all that that promises, and if we trust and hope in the promises of Christ, then why are we so given over to fear and anxiety about our future within this world, and not even just our future, but even the day or days ahead, we can so often be filled with anxiety that it makes it hard for us to engage in day-to-day -day life with any clarity uh, of mind and thought, or certainly in, to engage in our, our spiritual life. It's really, I think, only when our prayer becomes very deep and constant, especially with the praying of the Jesus prayer, that again, we are able to remain in that peace of the kingdom and the peace of Christ. And so even as we pursue worldly matters uh, in accord with our need or the needs of our family, we're, we are doing so 
with, with that peace and the clarity that comes from it. You know, we can see what, what, what is really and truly needed and how to go about it, uh, but not when things aren't clear for us in terms of the immediate future or many years down the road, old age, we, we aren't allowing ourselves to fall into that anxiety. Carol. Reminds me of Newman, one step enough from me. Yes, you know, his, his poem that was then, then became a hymn, Lead Kindly Light, uh, that we ask light enough from the Lord uh, to make one step forward. And that should be enough for us, that the Lord would provide for us the clarity that we need in the moment. And it's interesting, I think when we begin to live our life in that way, uh, when we can approach each day, each moment with a spirit of gratitude, but also with a kind of joyfulness, then we're able to make our way through the things of our day-to-day -day life without, uh, you know, becoming over, uh, distraught over even the difficult things that we encounter, that we're able to make our way through them. Uh, with greater ease because we aren't being weighed down by anxiety or the weight of our own thoughts. And uh, this is the powerful thing because it's not simply even a kind of thoughtlessness, you know, moving the mind to a state of emptiness. It's uh, being rooted in something far greater. It's being rooted in, again, the peace of the kingdom, the peace of Christ. And so, Christian prayer. Christian meditation should be the most powerful of things. There might be some similarities that we see in the various kinds of prayer and meditation of different spiritual traditions. But for us as Christian men and women, it's always radically personal. It's always focused upon Christ and should also be focused upon his promises that uh, of certainly of our redemption, our salvation, uh, but the, the promise is to share in the very life of God himself. And with that should come not only a dissipation of anxiety, but freedom from anxiety in day-to-day -day life. Anthony. Anthony writes, this brings up another question, a good understanding on retirement accounts, pensions, investments, interest returns, and even usury. It's hard to turn away from predicting the future and money, even trying to be prudent. So we are a burden to no one since we are self-sufficient. Is this fear or is investment good? Like the parable of the talents taken in a literal sense. Um, you know, certainly I think one, again, one thing to provide for oneself or one's family and to be able to care for oneself, there is a kind of uh, prudence in that. You know, that God has given us uh, certain gifts, abilities, and we are to make use of them. Uh, but again, it goes beyond prudence. Sometimes we will use the word prudence, and what it really means is cowardice for us. It's not rooted in that trust in God, that we will often argue prudence, especially when it comes to issues of faith, of bearing witness to the Lord, that we will hold back in uh, you know, proclaiming the truth or bearing witness to it in word and deed, uh, and will argue for prudence to say that it's more prudent to remain silent in the face of obvious injustice 
uh, and, uh, and what it really is is a lack of courage. And so even in something such as this, where we can say this is a good thing to provide and tr seek to provide for oneself and one's family and one's old age to be able to provide uh, care for ourselves. But it, you know, when it becomes driven by anxiety, then I think we begin to see, you know, uh, it becomes something that we become obsessed over. And uh, you use the, the phrase self-sufficient towards the end of your, your question and comments. And I think that's another thing that sort of weighs heavily upon us, that there is no Christian in isolation. And there should be such a radical bond that exists between us as Christian men and women that we would want to care for others as much as we would want others to care for us or that we, or that we would have a kind of peace in our old age that we would want that for others as well. And uh, there were times, you know, especially when great hardship came to people in, in this country, for example, you know, during the depression, where you could see that in certain individuals, that their care for others was as great as their care for their family. And uh, it was often said of my grandmother, my mom's mom, uh, even though they were poor during that period of time, there were people that came that to whom she gave food and who would later say that it, without her, they would not have survived, not have made it th through that period. And, uh, and so there, there's something about this obligation for the care of others and the care of the poor and the care of the elderly that should permeate our, our identity and our consciousness as Christian men and women. And this kind of self-sufficiency and this radical individualism that we have in our culture makes us very guarded about what we have for ourselves and what we put away for for ourselves. And, uh, and so it be, can become a constant part of our inner dialogue or our dialogue within our families or in religious communities or within the church. We begin to think about things as a business rather than being rooted in a relationship with God who's promised to provide for, what, for us and what is needed. And, uh, and so the answer to your question, I think is, you know, it's not so cut and dry, you know, as, as if to say, you know, all these things are, are bad or contrary to the gospel, because I, I don't think they are. I think what undermines them or gives them too much power is uh, a lack of faith or a loss of faith, but also a lack of a sense of community that exists within the life of the church. that would make us responsible for each other. Ren. While so much is packed into this paragraph, I'm particularly struck by the sentence, for he who promised this does not lie. Well, for one second. He who promised this does not lie. I am so anxious about the future, but I don't often see my inability to trust as an accusation that the Lord is a liar. But in the end, it is. Maybe the way he provides for us is just different from whatever we imagine being provided for looks like. 
I can't imagine that he is promising to provide us with all the material securities we believe ourselves in need of. Yeah, you know, you know, Paul was realistic about this, you know, those who do not work, don't eat kind of thing, you know, that there we have this responsibility uh, to, to seek to care for ourselves and to provide for our own needs. But uh, again, when it becomes something that's all consuming, that shapes our mind, our perception of life, I think we get to the point that you describe here of calling God a liar, because we're no longer living in hope, hope in his promises to provide for us in our, our times of, of need and provide us with what is most important in our life. And, you know, I don't even think it has to be, you know, the extreme examples of that. I think we find ourselves uh, thrown into a tailspin on daily basis, on a daily basis when things aren't going well at work or we're confronted with things that are just overwhelming or coming at us too quickly. And we become anxious because we find out, I can't control all of these things. I can't manage all of these things. And if I can't manage them, then something bad is going to happen to me. My life is going to fall apart, or I'm going to be seen as a fool or incompetent or whatever it might, might be. And uh, those seem to, things seem to plague us even more than I think our concerns about the future. It's not 20, 30 years down the road. It can be 20, 30 minutes from now that, we, that paralyzes us. You know, because we, we don't know how we're going to make our way through it. So any, any other thoughts or comments? I think Daniel or Ashley had, I think she says we can fall into a false prudence pretty easily, which would translate to self-preservation at all costs. That's right. Self-preservation at all costs is a good, I think, way of expressing it uh, because the focus does become directed toward the self, toward the ego. In the Byzantine rite, the gospel this weekend was uh, about the rich, rich young man and who not only had worked very hard and gained many possessions, but he had also lived a very uh, religious life, you know, that he had kept all, I've kept all of these. He keeps using the word I. I've kept all these, what more must I do to inherit eternal life? Not realizing who it is that he has standing before him. And so Christ keeps asking him this, these questions or he plays along, first telling him to keep the commandments. And then eventually he reveals his identity to him. You know, go sell all that you have, be free of this anxiety completely. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor and then come follow me. And he could, he could not make that step, even though he had the Lord of life uh, before him, that he had salvation before him, he could not take hold of it, even though there was a goodness to him. He could not let go of what was a source of security for him. I think this is what makes the stories amazing of the call of the first apostles. When we see Peter and Andrew and James and John walk away from their boat and their nets and their, their families to follow after the Lord. Or when Matthew similarly leaves what would have been a lucrative uh, job and follows after the Lord as well. 
that it was in and through that encounter with God incarnate that they were able to do so. You know, it wasn't because they, they were throwing caution to the wind. It's because they had an encounter with the living God. And this is what gave them a kind of faith to let go of all fear and anxiety. Oh, for a measure of that faith, I think, even on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Any other thoughts? Okay. From Ababar Sanufius, a brother who was living the Hezekatic life in a Cenobitic monastery asked an elder, a widow who is suffering injustice sent someone to me, begging that I write the Domesticus to help her. Now I have two thoughts on the matter. One says to me, I came here to die to the world. And, and if you write him, you are transgressing the commandment of mortification to the world. The other suggests to me, if you do not write him, you are transgressing the commandment that bids you help those in need. Tell me, Father, what should I do? The elder responded, if you were a corpse and a widow suffering injustice came here, would you be able to help her? Obviously not in the least. Besides, if you help her, another will come along asking for help in something, and thus you transgress the commandment of mortification. A dead man gives no thought to such things, even if others should grumble at you. This will not cause you any harm. So, a very powerful image, you know, for a monk who's left the world completely, again, to have one sole focus. And so to see one as truly dead to the world, it clarifies uh, his, the answer to his question radically. If she were to come to a corpse, what response would she get? She would get no, no response. And uh, for, for all of us, you know, I think in, again, in our interaction with the things of this world and the things I think that produce anxiety within us, uh, I think the, to be able to see the thing, see things in the same way as one having died to the world and who is alive to Christ, and that that in some measure should radically clarify the, our ability to discern uh, in certain circumstances when we are presented with things of this world that are calling us away from our commitment to prayer, our commitment to family. Uh, you know, anything that has the greater value for us, there are always going to be things that pull us away from uh, being faithful to it. And so to have this clear sense of having, again, died to the world, the things that appeal to or give rise to the passions, whether it's avarice or lust or whatever it might be, we should be a corpse to those things and in order that we might hold fast to what God would have us do. And so obviously our response to what the monk is faced with would be different, but it would be very much the same in a whole host of other uh, areas of our day-to-day -day life. Daniel. 
I, I'm sorry, I can't really type this one out okay, well. Sure. But um, but I think one thing I'm picking up in this that's a little that's um like not maybe explicitly said, but is kind of like subtly assumed, mm-hmm. is that like in this, it doesn't say what the woman specifically came like what what her problem was i guess to begin with right it wasn't like she didn't come to him saying that she's starving to death or she had some like necessarily like overly critical matter she had something that was troubling her but it, it also could have been you know vain maybe it is surface level right like a, a perceived injustice and maybe she's in the right but it's not necessarily of like massive importance, right? And so she's asking this person to write, uh, write to a superior, you know, someone who could help her because if he does it, you know, they'll listen. But at the same, t- you know, so so when he's being told like, hey, you know, it's, it's almost like a temptation then for the monk to like, almost like um, maybe vanity himself, right? Like self-importance, right? Like if I do this, I can really help this woman because, because they'll listen to me or something. Do you know what I mean? And it versus like, okay, but this, is, you know, did she really come to you with something urgent? Like, you know, like something very important, serious, or is this again, just kind of more of like um, a worldly allurement, right? Not a, not like, Hey, I came to you with this really vital thing you know like like i need food right you know it's just it's just it seems to be like kind of subtly said within with or or assumed within a lot of these that it's that it's more of that that other thing yeah that that i I, you know i'm following your thought there and that certainly can be true i think and you know i think our tendency often is to insert ourselves uh in the affairs of others and uh, I know this goes a little bit further than what's written here, but uh, because there's some distress that she's experiencing and we're told that it's an injustice is being done to her. But uh, I think we, we often will insert ourselves in places to be fixers of other people's problems and or, or we'll go looking for others to fix our, our problems as well before we turn to God. And before we seek his aid, and often God is the last place we turn for strength and help and and wisdom and guidance, and uh, and so I think in our day to day struggle, I think this is telling us something pretty important. You know, again, where do we place our hope? Where does our real strength come from? And is you know, for a monk here, is he one who is to be negotiating worldly affairs? Or is he to be focused upon his particular vocation? And the same is true for, for priests. They're, you know, you're ordained for a particular reason. And often priests can be drawn into really worldly kinds of affairs, thinking that, again, because of personal influence, or a certain kind of wisdom that uh, it's a good thing to do. And when it really can be a profound distraction from the more fundamental reality that they've been called to, which is the care of souls. 
And that care of souls can sometimes even lead them into the practical everyday affairs and negotiating those things for individuals as, as well. And so there has to be kind of care there and discernment about how that is done, you know, because again, if the tempter is one who can draw us into certain things, it can, they can seem just or they can seem important. And in very subtle ways, he can simply redirect our attention off of the things that God wills for us to be attentive to in that moment, in that day. And that can be something that's sufficient to lead us in, into sin. And in fact, the, the more good something is, or the more important it seems to us, the, the greater the draw it has upon our heart. So it's not as though the evil one simply uses things that are obviously sinful to draw the human heart. And in some ways, it's even more provocative to use the things that really appeal to our more refined sensibilities or our religious sensibilities. And uh, often the greatest falls come from, you know, you know priests who think that they're doing the, the will of God. And they can very quickly slip into a kind of disobedience because they are elevating their own will or their own perception and judgment about certain actions over the, you know, the will of a superior or their bishop or whatever it might, might be. And uh, so, again, it's sort of an exalted view of the self, of the ego, or, uh, and so in so many different ways, the, I, I, again, I think it's the ego that becomes our, our problem. The thing that pulls us away from God, it becomes our God. Kevin. Oh, if you help her, another will come along asking for help. It seems like all the lessons tonight are saying the same thing. If we make an exception, then the exception becomes the role. Thus, we need to save ourselves from the false guilt of breaking from the duties of our Christian vocation for others out of need, because there will always be needs, or even our own curiosities to chase ideas and activities. In short, once we make an exception, we become regularly distracted and potentially eventually completely off course. Really well put. I think that sort of pulls everything in, into focus here that we've been looking at. And as I was reading your thoughts, I, uh, what came to mind from the scriptures was uh, the woman who brings in the, the, the uh, joy uh, the jar of expense expensive ointment and she breaks it and pours it over over christ's head and feet and is rebuked for that this could be given to the poor and christ says you'll have the poor with you always but you will not always have me that here she was engaged in this act of profound love and generosity that she alone among all of them could see that something was taking place, that he was heading towards Jerusalem. She could see the weight and the burden that he was already beginning to carry. And she begins, seeks, seeks to soothe him in that way. And uh, perhaps unknowingly anointing him then also for his death. 
And so she's, she's performing the greatest act of charity for the Lord. In fact, he, he tells them, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what she has done here will be preached, will be held up as the model example of, of you know, this uh, divine generosity and love, this divine excess, if you will. And so, you know, we very easily can be pulled into uh, this kind of thinking, especially as, as Kevin relays it here in his, in his comments, where, you know, the exception becomes the rule, you know, that once we give way to a certain way of thinking about things and approaching them, then before long, what is at the heart of the gospel or the Christian vocation becomes pushed out more and more to the margins. And uh, there's a part of us that willingly does that, because I think there's something about the demands of, of love as they come to us uh, in, from Christ. And as we see in the cross that our love as Christians is cruciform, there's always going to be some part of us that wants to move away from that absolute call that un and that unconditional response that's asked for by our Lord. And we see it again and again in the gospel, you know, when Christ calls the, these three individuals and they all begin to make those excuses, you know, I just got married or I have a farm and cattle to take care of uh, or parents, to, you know, take care of, you know, all these things that are valid, you know, certainly in, in the eyes of the world and even on so many different levels of reality, but in terms of divine reality, what God has revealed and what he's doing and, and what he calls us to do and how he calls us to live, all those things are of lesser value. Kevin. I was just gonna mention, you know, the fourth monastic vow of stability. Great. And that's not simply to staying, you know, on the property, but it's to remain focused, you know, on our right. vocation. So on the location. in the world. We need to remain stable and first things first and trying to stay away from making the exceptions, you know. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I think in our day, you know, I think within the life of the church, we've lost that stability, I think, because we have become so unmoored, I think, from the gospel and from tradition itself, from the spiritual tradition of the fathers. And so we are often drawn, even in our proclamation of the gospel, to focus upon that activity and not allowing that to flow out of worship, to worship the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself, that one flows out of the other. And when we neglect that relationship with God, you know, very easily even our evangelization becomes distorted or a faint image of what it really should be. How do we know how to bear witness to you know, the truth or to the love of the kingdom unless we are immersed in it, unless we love God with all of our mind, heart, soul, and strength? And everything flows out of that reality. And I think we've, again, we've lost sight of that. We fall into a kind of activism and that becomes the, the sort of the heart of our spiritual life. And, uh, you know, certainly it has its place and it's absolutely essential, but it has to flow out of that reality in which we are immersed, which is the love of God. Okay. 
So that brings us to the end of hypothesis 24. So we'll move on to 25. We have a little bit of time left here, how evil is easy and that there are many who choose this, especially in our day, and that virtue is demanding and that there are a few who pursue it. And so we're to emulate those who pursue the latter. Okay, from the Geront Khan. One of the brethren once came to Abba Theodore of Ferm and said to him, such and such a brother returned to the world. The elder replied, are you surprised at this? Do not be surprised, but be more amazed if you hear that someone was able to escape from the mouth of the enemy. That in the world, we should almost be more surprised by those who live a faithful life, who really have a clear focus upon the things that have true, true value and that are enduring. And so far from being scandalized or surprised by hearing that somebody has left the path or returned to the world uh, or who have left their vocation in one form or another, that sh it should not scandalize us. Knowing uh, how the human heart works, how treacherous it can be, how fickle it can be and changeable it can be, that it, the, the thing that should surprise us is those who live a life of heroic virtue. An elder said, it is better to live with three men who fear the Lord than with 10,000 who do not fear, do not have fear of God. For in the last days, among the hundreds of the Cenobitic monasteries, very few will be saved, and all will turn into devotees of the refractory and to gluttony, love of power, and avarice. Many are called, but few are chosen. So it's interesting, you know, in the last days that the majority of the monastics, he's saying, are not really going to be living it. That there can be a movement from sort of this uh, burning desire from God out of which the monastic life arose uh, to a more lukewarm form of it. And that with each generation, instead of that asceticism becoming perfected, by grace, not meaning that we take upon ourselves more and more disciplines, but we live it and seek to live it more and more perfectly. This is what we are to do with the passing of each day and each year of our life. There's, there should be a perfecting of zeal and a perfecting of asceticism that leads us to God and leads us away from the passions. But what we so often find is this backward movement, a cooling of that zeal for the Lord. So that in the, the last times he's saying that there are going to be more that are, are focused upon worldly things. And for the monk, that would be the refractory. When's dinner? You know, and uh, that the thought is always going to turn, you know, when, to when's the, the next meal. So what they're most attracted to is the bell that rings for, for the refractory rather than the bell that calls them to prayer. And it's sort of an interesting thing. I find both in the fathers, the ancient fathers, but in the more modern elders too, that they see this sort of downward trend in terms of fidelity. But those in the end who remain faithful are going to be the most heroic of them all. 
they'll be fewer in number, but because of what they are experiencing in the world that moves further and further away from God, that to live a life of fidelity to the Lord, they are going to have to have this kind of heroic virtue because they're going to have to make a conscious choice in the face of so many who bear the name Christian, but are not living it. They're going to have to make this choice about how, how fully am I going to give myself over to God or am I going to allow myself to move along that path uh, to, to mediocrity, which is inevitable. The more that I think our, our view of faith, of religion, of the church is formed by, uh, by the world itself and the ideas of the world. And I think that's what we see see so often, you know, how we read the gospel, you know, the most revolutionary of, of writings that really, you know, alters the way that we see ourselves as human beings. We domesticate it. And in domesticating it, you know, we, we weaken its, its ability then to transform our lives. Ren Witter. Really, paragraph one is also wonderful advice simply for the sake of our own peace of mind and joy. How much better to be, to rejoice in virtue and constancy than to be constantly turning the mind to falls and failures and being pulled down into the sorrow of them oneself. Better always to look to what is the cause of joy. Right, so to keep our eyes focused upon Christ and upon uh, his promises and to hold fast in hope is to live in a constant joy. That sin, even though it's the easier path for us, is not something that brings joy or fullness to the human heart. If we're made for God and we only find our fullness in the context of that relationship with him, then our turning away from him is going to live a, leave us with a greater and greater void and leave us more and more unhappy. We might have more and more things within this world that we turn to, uh, but internally our heart is going to fill devoid of love and hope and any kind of real joy. Daniel Allen. Could this also be more personal than prophetic? End times as we live in the end times since the coming of Christ. And that finding three people who strive toward God, that it's strugglers, is the great value, greater value than the security of the group, the thousands. Yes, so more personal than prophetic. Yeah, I think so. It's a good point. You know, Philip Neary had that, you know, thought, you know, if I had 10 truly detached men, I could convert the world. And so in a sense, this has always been true, you know, 10 or 12 disciples, you know, uh, it's a handful of individuals who have faith that can transform the world as they did, or the tiny mustard seed that seems to be nothing can have this enormous impact, and, and we can see enormous gro growth through it, uh, even though its beginnings are, are very small. And so, in a, in a sense, you know, this that it, we are in the end times with the coming of Christ 
it, we're drawn into that reality. God has revealed himself in uh, the fullest and most complete fashion. And he's given us everything in his only begotten son. There's nothing greater or more to give us. And so we live in the end times and should live as though we understand that. And so what is our response? Our, always the, the thing that's put before us is what is our response to Christ at this moment? Not sometime down the line, down the road, but at this very moment in our life. And it can be far more subtle than what we find here in, in the fathers. You know, it can be, am I going to turn to him in prayer? Or am I going to turn to the other thing that I prayed before, the television or the computer? All right. Number three. The same elder said, if you find yourself in a place and come across men having but little relief, pay no heed to them. But if you see another man so poor that he has not even bread, look after him. And then you will find rest of soul. So, you know, those who are of meager means, you know, are, you know, able to care for themselves, you know, on some level, or God will provide for them. But one who is destitute, one who has nothing. And I think we don't need to see this even on a material level. Uh, but those who have no hope, we are to be most attentive to and uh, in, in the sense of lifting them up and carrying them for. And that's where we find true rest of soul, that we aren't willing to, to look the other way past the emptiness of the other. And it's usually those who are empty that sadly we turn away from or do not see at all. You know, the story from the gospel that comes to mind is Lazarus at the, the gate uh, of the rich man's home. It's the, he was never seen, even though he laid at the gate of the house and the dogs were licking his sores. You know, the, the rich man never, never sees his presence, is never aware of him or sees him as a human being. Does he weep at night? How did he come to this state? You know, uh, uh, you know, is, is he in despair? You know, these thoughts never enter into his mind. And so often the same is true for us that, you know, we often are more attentive to those who have very much than we are to those who have nothing. You know, because on some level, we are fearful of that. You know, or we find it repugnant on some level. But I think it's more fear. We don't want to enter into that kind of nothingness, that void, and to, you know, be willing to give out and give from, you know, our poverty in order to enrich, enrich another. This is why Christ is so moved when he comes to the temple and the old lady throws in her two last coppers, you know, that she, for the care of the temple, she does something extraordinary. And, uh, you know, but for the care of those who've been made temples of God, you know, we will often cling to our last two pennies rather than to enter into their poverty or what they might be struggling with. Carol. Yeah, I think that's a good 
And Lee Graham, I'll get to your comments in a moment here. Also, the Good Samaritan and the man lying in the gutter. That's right. You know, that the, the, the priest and the, the Levite pass by, you know, and do nothing. Uh, you know, either, you know, for fear of falling into the same fate or uh, of negligence. There was a kind of a common thing for robbers to come out of the hillside and do exactly that road from from Jerusalem to Jericho was known for being treacherous. And so often uh, robbers would, lay, you know, lie down in the road and play dead. And then as soon as somebody would stop and attend to them, they would be set upon. And so the Samaritan does something extraordinary, you know, that he uh, stops and, you know, provides for all of his needs, even beyond uh, what he can sort of see uh, in the moment. And uh, this is what we are to, to respond to, is most to have an eye for uh, those who are most in, in need because we can often allow ourselves to turn away from them. And I think that's the point of this saying, we will, you know, we can turn away from them in order to tend to somebody else who has need, but not as much need and might not require as much from us in response. Uh, Lee Graham. You had a comment up above. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and uh, a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Right. That we often return, you know, to the very thing that God has led us away from to immerse ourselves in it once again that we can be attracted to what is repulsive rather than to what is good and beautiful. Carol, did you have another thought? Or, okay. All right. Daniel Allen, you're so correct and it's terrifying. <laughs> that's, that's my job, that's why I'm here to terrify people. Uh, but it is, it can be. I think when, I think when we are presented with the gospel and its fullness, uh, it fills, should fill the heart with wonder. And I think, you know, in our state, our experience of that would often be terrifying because we are presented with a godly love or a godly kind of generosity of spirit, a willingness to lay down one's life, not only for one's friends, but for one's enemies. And, uh, you know, again, to respond in this unconditional way. And so the, the, the virtue that we are called to, the perfect, perfection that we are called to is that of Christ. You know, that we are immersed, being drawn into this relationship with the Lord so deeply, again, that his virtue becomes our virtue, his strength becomes our strength. And when we see that, it can be terrifying because all of a sudden we realize that the standard of judgment in regards to loving and giving is no longer our own judgment or our own reason, but it's been what has been revealed to us in Christ. And if we don't find that terrifying, at least at some point in our life, there probably is something wrong with us. And I think it's St. John Chrysostom who said that about the Eucharist, 
that there would be, if, you know, we should go through a period of time in our life when we fear to receive it because we, the, we're overcome by the wonder of it all, that God would give himself to us in this fashion and that this kind of love and, self, and giving of self and love would be expected from us as well. Uh, Sheila Applegate and then Ren. It's terrifying because we see our smallness and lack of faith in the providence and grace of God. We prefer to intellectualize and analyze our own way. Right. So again, you know, putting our own, own judgment above what has been revealed and making that judgment the standard rather than the cross being the standard for us. Ren Witter, you have the final word tonight. We're at 8.30. This message, Ren writes, is really so extraordinary. We do not want to attend to the poor because their poverty terrifies us. We do not want to attend to those who are sad because their sorrow is discomforting. We do not want to attend to the physically or mentally ill because we can be literally afraid of catching something or losing our own peace of mind. Evil and this strange manifestation of it a preference for the rich, the healthy, the strong are so much easier. But virtue and keeping company with the, tr the truly blessed, that is the poor, the meek, the sorrowing, is hard and uncomfortable. So compelling. Wow. Yes, uh, beautifully put. And you certainly all capture it better than what I've been able to do here tonight. But it is, it is discomforting. I think that's that, that would be the word for what we've just read, that it throws us out of ourself and our perception of things in such a radical way that it does make us very uncomfortable because it means letting go of our perception of things and struggling with that part of ourselves that wants to go back to the lesser state even though we know that it brings us no happiness. So the, the, uh, I think it was Lee who quoted from Proverbs there, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a sinner returns to its sin, that we would rather return to that because it's less fearful for us. We might know it brings us no happiness. It might even create a kind of hell for us, and it's disgusting, you know, returning to its vomit, sniffing around its own vomit. Well, we'd rather do that than to know the, the freedom of the kingdom and to love and give ourselves in the love, uh, in love in the way that Christ does. That this is something that, you know, that could be asked of us. And part of it, I think, of our struggle is that we haven't seen and allowed ourselves to be drawn into the wonder of that love, that this is what has been given to us that God has entered into our poverty in this radical way. He's thrown everything in, you know, into the bin, as it were, as that old woman who threw her coppers in. God has thrown everything in on our behalf. And that can be beautiful to us if we allow ourselves to be drawn into the wonder of it, or it can be terrifying and we can run away from it. And this is where, you know, I think our worship and our experience of liturgy and allowing ourselves to be drawn into that mystery and to receive it is the most important thing because it's only in receiving it then that we find the strength and the capacity 
to, to love in the way that we've been called to love. It's not something, again, that we can climb up this mountain of virtue or just think one day, I'm gonna love like that. You know, it, it's, you know we, it's an illusion. It's only when we allow ourselves to be drawn into the mystery and given this love that we are then able to give it to others. Fathers are amazing. And I think what makes them, again, so amazing is how deeply rooted they are in the scriptures. You know, it really makes the, the scriptures come to life. And the most powerful and sometimes, as you said, unsettling ways. Okay, so that brings us to 8.30 and we'll stop there for the evening. And uh, when we close, as always, with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.